or on the rich side of things. Now, I know you may not feel like it. I know this. I certainly don't sometimes, but we probably are. There's a book called Nickel and Dimes. The, the author went undercover as a reporter to see what it would be like to try and live and get by without a college degree, with, without much in savings, without her own car, with, without a house, without a clear skill set. She found herself working when she could as a waitress or a hotel maid, as a house cleaner, as a nursing home aide, as a, as a Walmart associate. And she, would, she would write of her co-workers living in trailers and hotels unable to afford the first and last month's deposit to be able to move into an apartment. And how that lack of a stove and a refrigerator forced them to eat higher-priced and less nutritious food. You have no money for health care. Your part-time job doesn't provide it. You're forced to go without primary care, necessary prescriptions. It was an, an eye-opening introduction into the life of the working poor. And how they often are subject to conditions that they can do nothing about. But even that, even that is nothing compared to what faces over one billion of our global neighbors. Economists put together something that would help to introduce us to what so many in this world live in. It's kind of a, a walkthrough of what it would take to transform the average American home into the typical dwelling of the majority of the world's inhabitants. So begin with, think of your furniture. Get rid of it all. Everything goes, the beds, the chairs, the tables, the TVs, the lamps. All that's left for your family, a few old blankets, a kitchen table, and one chair. It's a wooden chair. It's not even comfortable. When it comes to clothing, each member of your family may keep their oldest suit or dress and then one shirt. The head of the family gets a pair of shoes, not the wife or the children. Now let's walk into the kitchen. All the appliances are gone. The cabinets have to be emptied. All that's left is a box of matches, a small bag of flour, some sugar, and some salt. Those moldy potatoes that you've already put in the trash can, take them back out. That's going to be your dinner tonight. Maybe add in a handful of onions, a dish of dried beans, but that's it. Everything else goes, the meat, the veggie meat, the, the fresh vegetables, the canned goods, the crackers, the candy, all of it, gone. 
Not, not only do we have to strip your house down this way, you've got to get rid of the bathroom, shut off the water, take out all the electrical wires. But that's not it. We've got to take, get rid of the house itself. We're going to move out into the tool shed. Things related to communication, forget about that. No more newspapers, magazines, books, internet. In fact, we wouldn't really need it because most likely our literacy will be taken away from us. All that's left is one small radio. Government services don't exist. No more mail delivery, no fire department. Now there is a school that is three miles away and has two small classrooms. No hospitals or doctors nearby. The nearest clinic is 10 miles away and is tended to no more than a midwife. You can get there on a bicycle, assuming you can afford a bicycle. And then what about money? You're allowed a cash hoard of $5. Kind of puts struggling to pay the visa bill for last month's shopping spree into perspective, doesn't it? Now, what does James want to say about all of this? What does he want to say to those with money and those without money? What does he want to say to those who hire and to those who have been hired? To the haves and the have-nots. We pick it up in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Today we're going to look at it in the message paraphrase. He says, And a final word to you, arrogant rich. Take some lessons in lament. You'll need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you. Your money is corrupt, and your fine clothes stink. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth. What you've piled up is judgment. All the workers you've exploited and cheated cry out for judgment. The groans of the workers you used and abused are a roar in the ears of the master avenger. You've looted the earth and lived it up. But all you'll have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. In fact, what you've done is condemn and murder perfectly good persons who stand there and take it. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, hold on a second, James. That, that's a little heavy. Calm down a little bit, James. But James is actually hot about something that's very specific and one that when we catch up to him, we actually won't think that he's been out of line at all. 
See, James is after a specific person, the one who's not just wealthy, but made their wealth the center of their life. But that's still not all. This wealthy person who made wealth the center of their life also uses their wealth to take advantage of the poor. These are people who made making money everything, hoarding it, building it up, stockpiling it away. Then they spent it only on themselves, living lavishly and opulently, and they made it on the backs of the people they exploited and cheated. James doesn't really sound that over the top with this language now. Now, I'm sure none of us consider ourselves even remotely like that kind of person. We don't have that kind of money. And even to begin oppressing people, and even if we did, we don't have that kind of heart. So you might be wondering, does James have anything for us here in this passage? Actually, he's already given it to us. There are two challenges in these words for the oppressing, ruthless rich that would apply to us to any of us. The first is to realize that wealth is not going to do any of us any good in the life to come. If we just hoard it for ourselves and use it for ourselves in this world. That's a lesson for all of us. Right now, that money buys us things. Affords you things allows you to rise above some things. You can use money to get first-class seats, front-row tickets, name-brand clothes. Money can keep you out of lines, maybe even out of jail, out of mowing your lawn for yourself, free from cleaning your own home, but in the life to come, it could be the very source of your judgment. Not because money itself is bad. It's not. God gives us the means to earn money and gives some of you the ability to earn a lot of money. Some of you are doing well, doing really well. And if you're smart, you'll see that as a God which means that you'll see that you've been given that money for the purpose of honoring him. To be used in ways that advance his kingdom and build his church. But we can also be pretty stupid when it comes to money. God brought that gain into your life but instead of living simply, increasing your giving, doing important things with that money, you just buy larger houses, going on better vacations, more expensive clothing, higher-end furniture, better tech toys. It's one of those things that I think all of us need to guard our heart about. 
It's a well-documented spiritual disease. Time after time, studies have shown that it is often the wealthiest who give the least. That's the way that money can work on a heart. I read a story of J.C. Penney, the founder of the department store chain, that when he tells when he first started working, he earned $10 a week. And he gave 10% of those $10 faithfully to his church by giving $1 off the top. Because it's what the Bible told him to do, to tithe what he made. Then, as his business began to grow, that money began to compound until that 10% was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. And he said that he had a little talk with God about that. He reminded God how his tithe was now huge, seemingly all out of proportion. And he sensed that God gave him an answer. That answer was brief and to the point. He sensed that God said, All right, JC, I'll be reasonable. I'll see that you go back to $10 a week. Then you'll only have to give a dollar again. Said he never complained about giving 10% again. But I mentioned there were two challenges that James had for all of us here. The second challenge that James says that applies to all of us is that we must be just in our financial dealings with other people. If we owe someone, we must pay them what we owe. If we employ someone, it should be for a fair and a just wage. Forever in a position of influence, authority, oversight, it should be exercised in a way that tries to give instead of just trying to take. And I know some of you are thinking, I don't employ anyone. Really? What about that waiter or waitress that you're supposed to tip? Do you have someone mowing your lawn? What about a maid service at a hotel? What about the pizza delivery driver? A babysitter? There's always someone that we can give to instead of just taking from. Most of us have a chance to do right by someone who serves us. But what about the people on the other side of things? We've talked about what James has to say to those who have. Does he have anything to say to those who have not? And that's where James takes us next. Beginning in verse 7, he says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop? And how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient. And stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. 
the judge is standing at the door. I mean, who, who among us hasn't been a have-not at one point in time? Most of us have felt what that's like, to not have enough money, to, to not have a job, to suffer, to be deprived, to be alone, to be victimized. To be without power, with, without means, without connection. Many of you are in a have-not season right now. And James has three words for you. Patience, perseverance, and perspective. Now, patience, most of us know what that means. It's waiting. It's enduring without complaining or whining about it. But James isn't after patience in general. Again, remember the context that he's talking to us in. He's just set up this great division between the haves and the have-nots. It's, it's the one thing to have patience for a temporary roadblock. Maybe it's a project at work that you just can't seem to figure out what that next step is. Maybe it's a crying child. Maybe it's backed up traffic. It's one thing to have patience in that situation. It's another to have patience when it's needed for a season. The barren womb, the wayward child, the difficult marriage, the, the chronic pain or illness. Short-term patience won't help you get through those. What's needed is long-term patience. So how do you get long-term patience? I'll tell you how you won't get it. You won't get long-term patience on short-term vision. If your focus is only on this life, you will find it very difficult to get through the this life only type of stuff. Because this life isn't everything. Real living hasn't even started yet. Jesus told us over and over again to take our eyes off of this world and to focus them on eternity, on, on the life to come. The Bible's very clear about the life to come for those of us in a relationship with Jesus. In fact, look at the words in Revelation where he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Nothing impure will ever enter it. And when you study those who have endured horrific things, you see this in play. They knew this life was not the final word, which allowed them to live with a strength, with, with a dignity, a, a perseverance that was simply not of this world. They knew that a day was coming when wrongs would be righted, when justice would flow down like a river. I read of a missionary who was once asked, what will Jesus say when he returns? 
And he remembered that the Bible said that when he returned, it would be with a loud shout. Missionary thought about it. And he, and he came to the conclusion that Jesus, when he comes back, will shout, enough! Enough suffering. Enough starvation. Enough terror. Enough death. Enough indignity. Enough lives trapped in hopelessness. Enough sickness and disease. At the end, when Jesus returns, he says, Jesus will cry out, enough. And that's something to look forward to. To let shape your vision. And from that, your patience. Which is why James is not just talking about patience, but also about perseverance. When I was in college, I was given a nickname, and that nickname was Admiral. Those of you who are a little bit more seasoned, that's a good way of saying old, may know what that, co what that refers to. Admiral Jim Stockdale that of no of no relation, was the highest-ranking United States military officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War. Tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment, Admiral Stockdale endured his time without any prisoner's rights, without a release date, or even the certainty that he would even survive to ever see his family again. Yet he shouldered that burden. He exchanged secret information in letters to his wife. He instituted an elaborate internal communications system with his fellow prisoners. After his release, Admiral Stockdale became the first three-star officer in the history of the Navy to wear both the aviator's wings and the Congressional Medal of Honor. How did a man endure such torture, such deprivation and isolation without knowing the end of the story? In a dialogue with author Jim Collins, Admiral Stockdale simply said this, I never lost faith. In the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn that experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. Can you imagine that? Collins then asked him, well, who didn't make it out? Admiral Stockdale said, that's easy. The optimists. The ones who said, we're going to be out of here by Christmas. Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, oh, we're going to go home by Easter. And Easter would come. And Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and, and then we're back to Christmas. And Admiral Stockdale said, they died of a broken heart. The patience that James is after is not just long-term endurance under affliction. 
It's also about patience towards the person that is afflicting us by not taking revenge, by not retaliating, by not striking back, not taking out our just anger, our just offense, and using it to exact justice on our own. Do you catch the line that James threw in there at the end? Take another look at James chapter 5, verse 9. He says, Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. What happens when people are hurting? We, we lash out at those closest to us. That's what James tells us. That in our suffering, in our pain, we might just want to take it out on those closest to us. And then he tells us, don't. Then James gives us one last word. The, the final two verses in this section in the message paraphrase says, take the old prophets as your mentors. They put up with anything went through everything and never once quit all the time honoring god what a gift is the, is to those who stay the course you've heard of course of job's staying power and you know how god brought it all together for him at the end that's because god cares right down to the last detail what's the last word this kind of life the life that James is talking about is possible even for those of us who go through about as much as life can throw at us like Job in the Old Testament whose name is almost synonymous with suffering but God saw him through it and in the end, Job saw how God was there through it all. And most importantly, that God was there in the end. With the final word, a final blessing, a final future. Is that kind of patience, perseverance, and perspective possible? Yes, but only through Jesus. Only Jesus can give us that, that patience, that perseverance, and that perspective. And what does it take from us? You know, back to the song that we sang right before this message. As narrow as the road may seem, as broken as my life may be, here I am, Lord. I am available. Use me in whatever way you see. Heavenly Father, 
thank you. Thank you for giving us the perspective that no matter what we go through, how terrible it may be, how much torture it may be, that we can get through it as long as we keep our eyes on you at the end. You will always be there for us. You will never let us down as long as we keep our eyes on you. In Jesus' name, amen.